You're listening to the 3RRFM Uncommon Sense Podcast with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Sarah Brugler from Environmental Justice Australia came in to talk about the proposed reforms to and current review of the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act in Victoria, uh, the key act that protects Victoria's environment. And then we spoke with Catherine Forge from Museums Victoria and Amelia Bright, a farmer from Fish Creek in South Gippsland, about the Invisible Farmer Project, which is a project um, run by Museums Victoria and bringing in a range of institutions to highlight the contribution of women historically and at the moment to farming in Australia. Then finally, we spoke with Owen Harsey, film director, about his film, Michael, They've Shot Them, a documentary on the Irish Easter Rising in Ireland and then its impact in Australia during World War I and the conscription debates. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio the wonderful Ben Altham. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Uh, good morning, Amy. And if you have not heard of Ben, which is very hard to believe, uh, he's from the New Matilda online platform, uh, among other things. He's a public intellectual, you could almost say, Ben. Oh, shucks, Amy. Come on, this is a bit much. Well, I haven't yet said National Treasure. We'll have to wait a few years for that. But uh, we're, <laughs> we're moving up to it. So, Ben... We had uh, quite a lot of politics happening over the weekend and previous. Let's start with, or chronologically, um, the Elon Musk tweets with, uh, what's his name, Mike Cannon Brooks, the uh, Australian startup bro in, uh, (laughs) (laughs) as people like to say, over there in America in Silicon Valley. Um, And uh, there was a bit of a Twitter conversation. I mean, not everything great happens on Twitter nowadays, but apparently, you know, this is a new way to make policy uh, for the state and federal governments. Um, And uh, Elon jumps in on the South Australia electricity debate. Could you set the scene for us, Ben? Well, yeah, it's amazing what a little bit of celebrity can achieve. So um, as we've been talking about over the last few months, South Australia and indeed the Australian energy grid has had a few issues. That There's been a lot of trouble there with the electricity. It's Basically, there's been a lot of blackouts and the, the grid is old and antiquated and it's reliant on coal and gas and a lot of those plants are now shutting down or struggling with maintenance and so we've had blackouts and... Um, Elon Musk and Tesla have been on a bit of a road show in Australia this week where they've been, um, uh, you know, shopping around their batteries. So uh, as many people might be aware, Tesla is a a very big, um, I guess, battery and car company in the United States and they're rolling out these uh, very, very modular and cheap batteries Um, particularly for the home they've got this thing called the power wall which would be a battery that would sit in your garage and that would uh, you could power it up with solar panels and and basically you could generate all the electricity you need and store it in your tesla battery so um uh, elon musk basically tweeted that he was prepared to solve south australia's (laughs) energy woes in a hundred days if if the south australian government gave him the money and uh mike cannon brooks who's a billionaire dot com kind of guy he founded a company called atlassian uh tweeted elon musk back saying well if you're serious about this elon i've got the money let's do it and um they kept tweeting and you know within sort of 24 hours uh elon musk had spoken to south australian premier jay west 
Wetherill, um, and it looks like the deal is on. So uh, the advantage for South Australia, of course, is is basically that these batteries um, will provide the kind of instantaneous energy that will really uh, it'll stabilise the grid. So part of the problem with the grid is that South Australia's got a lot of solar and wind electricity and that this is sometimes unstable because the wind doesn't blow. So if you put a bunch of batteries into that grid, then that really solves a lot of South Australia's energy security issues um, and yeah it looks like it's happening so watch this space yeah well i heard an interview with mike this morning about it and uh, he seemed quite bewildered at the response to tweets um, but also said that there are some other south australian companies who are battery providers coming to the party but he's a little bit skeptical because maybe um, they aren't necessarily making their own batteries but sourcing them overseas and i think we might get into this discussion about about, well, should we go with an overseas provider or should we favour Australian companies as well? Um, and it's great that it started a discussion. Also funny enough that uh, we saw Malcolm Turnbull was also on the phone with Elon Musk over the weekend for an hour-long conversation about this issue. Um, do you think it's it's changed the debate at all, Ben? And has it just shifted some kind of tectonic plates a bit in this energy debate that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks? Yeah, I think it's a bit of an Emperor's new clothes moment for Malcolm Turnbull. I mean, for months now, he's been insisting that fossil fuels are the answer to energy security, that, you know, this all this renewable energy is terrible stuff. He blamed the South Australian blackout on renewable energy, which was wrong. Um, he commissioned the chief scientist, Alan Finkel, to look into energy security. Alan Finkel said, we've got to get batteries. So, I mean, none of this is new, but it just exposes the coalition's energy policy for the cheap political politicking that it is really i mean everybody who's who follows energy policy knows that coal cannot be the answer anymore that it's too expensive so is gas um one of the sort of prices that Elon Musk mentioned during these sort of tweet discussions would would show that the batteries that he's planning to install will be cheaper than a new gas-powered uh, electricity generation plant. So that's how cheap the batteries are now and solar and wind are even cheaper. So, you know, the race is over, renewables have won and it's really now for the coalition to catch up on this. Well, let's watch South Australia and see if they can set a standard, I guess, for um, for capitalising on renewables. I know they have been leading, I think they've got now 50% renewable energy uh, generation. Yeah, and let's hope it also leads to the reform of the national electricity market, which is one of the worst market failures in the Australian economy. Uh, there's been open rotting of that market been going on for years now, uh, particularly by the fossil fuel generators. Um, and so what really needs to happen is that this all the rules for this market need to be rewritten to make it much more friendly for renewable energy. And once that happens, then we'll see the entrepreneurs move into that space quite quickly because they've got a better product. Mm. And interestingly, we just saw over the weekend um, a report come out from the Grattan Institute about electricity prices. And uh, interestingly, Victoria is one of the worst states in terms of competition between retail uh, electricity providers. So people, um, you know, people who buy, get electricity in their homes being retail. Um, and uh, it's it looks like they've got a huge markup. They're, they're getting about 43% profits from people's bills and uh, it just seems a bit staggering that uh, Victoria, um, after deregulating um, the market, doesn't have the competition. Ben, does the market work? 
No, in a, in a nutshell, it doesn't, you know. And, and in a way, this is a sort of a story of the last 25 years of policy in Australia, you know. Like for 25 years, we were told that markets work better, that by deregulating and letting the market rip, we'd get cheaper prices for consumers, uh, that governments were standing in the way of a better solution. And it's turned out that in many industries, that's just wrong. So electricity is a good example. They deregulated electricity retailing. That led to all sorts of people knocking on your door, trying to sell you electricity, ringing you at all hours of the day and night, trying to sell you a, a different electricity plan. But uh, it didn't result in lower power prices uh, because the way that these plans are written are terribly complicated. If you pay your bill on time, you get a discount. If you shop around, if you're prepared to change electricity providers, you might get cheaper electricity. But for those of us who just pay our bill and, and forget about it, um, actually, we get penalised. We get hit in the hip pocket. And it's, uh, it's like so many other markets. Essentially, what's happened is that there are only really three companies providing the electricity in the end. And the rest of those uh, retailers are just a front for the, the big three. So like so many other areas of the Australian economy, it's a, an oligopoly and they've driven up the prices. Absolutely. Well, let's see what happens there and hopefully renewables can change things a little bit. But uh, Ben, let's look at WA, that foreign country over there up to the left. Uh, What was happening over the weekend? We saw there was an election uh, and a a result, which was pretty resounding for the Labor Party. Um, What happened? Can you kind of give us a bit of a breakdown as to uh, what happened to the Liberal government and what's the fallout? Well, the Liberal government was defeated, resoundingly defeated, and we have a new government in Western Australia, the Labor government of Premier Mike McGowan. So uh, it had been eight and a half years under Colin Barnett for the Liberal Party over there. Uh, and uh, I think they were pretty tired. Uh, I think voters were pretty sick of them, and uh, they were thrown out, uh, pretty convincingly thrown out. It was a landslide, really. There were some amazing swings against uh, Liberal members, 15 20% swings against the Liberals in parts of Perth. So uh, a huge defeat for the Liberals over there and um, a, big, a big win for Labor. So we now have uh, Labor governments in uh, the majority of the Australian states and territories. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? And what might occur over the next three years. It's part of the normal uh, swings and roundabouts of Australian politics. Typically, when you have a federal government that is of one persuasion, then over a number of years, the states tend to go the other way. So um, for six years, we had a a Labor government uh, under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. And um, in that time period, most of the states swung over to Liberal governments in Queensland and New South Wales, Victoria, for example, Mm. um, Tasmania. Um, Well, now we've got a coalition government in Canberra and it's been in in there since 2013 and we've started to see the pendulum swing back. Queensland voted Labor in 2015. We've had WA go over to Labor now. Um, Victoria, of course, swung back to Labor. So, yeah, we're seeing a realignment of the the federation between the the states and and Canberra. Um, But there are federal implications, I think, um, even though people, you know, often say, oh, well, there's no federal implications for a state election. I think there are. And the big one is that the, the Western Australian electorate has traditionally been quite conservative. Um, for many, many years now, it's elected, particularly federally, it's elected a lot of Liberals. I think it's something like 11 of 
15 seats, uh, coalition seats over in the West. So um, if this realigns Western Australian politics towards a sort of more normal kind of East Coast kind of scenario, and bear in mind that hundreds of thousands of people have moved from the East Coast over to the West in the last few years, chasing better jobs and what have you, uh, then this has big implications because remember that the federal parliament's pretty much on a knife edge. Malcolm Turnbull has a one-seat majority. So if Labor picks up three, four, seats at the next election, that wins them the election right there in the West. Mm. And people were concerned about this election because, as you say, WA has been traditionally conservative. They thought perhaps this will be where One Nation will rise. Uh, That didn't really happen, did it? No, complete wipeout for One Nation, disastrous performance there. Uh, Pauline Hanson campaigned heavily in the West and crashed and burned, basically. Uh, it's it's hard to, to put it any other way. Uh, they were disorganised, they were chaotic. Uh, there were Pauline Hanson's comments about vaccination, which made people really uh, sit up and take notice in a, in a negative way. Um, they cut a preference deal with the Liberal Party, which backfired on both One Nation and the Liberal Party. One Nation voters are often protest voters, so they weren't happy about mm. One Nation backing the government. Government. Um, and of course, moderate liberals were horrified that the Liberal Party would back uh, an openly, uh, let's say, oh, let's say racist uh, party in one nation. So um, I think it was, uh, the, the preference deal backfired for both parties. Um, one nation's candidates were often revealed to be pretty crazy, pretty nutty, not necessarily fit for parliament. Uh, so yeah, it was a disaster for One Nation. Uh, time will tell whether they can regroup and do better in the forthcoming Queensland election, which might be held this year um, or early in 2018. But um, yeah, it, there's no other way to say it. It was a big defeat for One Nation. Mm. And when we're looking at the upper house, do we have any idea as to whether it will be um, obstructionist, do you think? based on the numbers that that look like they're coming out? The early numbers for the Western Australian Upper House are looking like it will be uh, Labor won't control the Upper House, so um, it could well be obstructionist. We don't really know. Um, There'll be a lot of minor parties. One Nation will win a couple of Upper House seats. The Shooters and Fishers might win a seat. The Mm. Greens will have three probably. There was also one, the Daylight Saving Party, which looked like it might get one. (laughs) Well, there's always a random uh, minor party that has a chance in any upper house election. Mm. So that's a a possibility. So it will be up to Mark McGowan and the Labor government there to negotiate with the upper house to get their legislation through. They've got some big challenges. It's been a a pretty bad recession over there in WA. I don't think people over east uh, here in in the east coast realise just how bad things have got over there. The, The decline of the mining boom has hit WA very hard. Unemployment has spiked up quite precipitously in some parts of um, the metropolitan suburbs of of Perth. Um, And so there's real pain over there. Um, The budget is deep in deficit. So Labor's got a lot of problems to sort out. Mm, Most certainly. Thanks so much for coming in, Ben, and giving us the wrap. Um, uh, It's always interesting to think about other places apart from Victoria. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Yeah, no, it's good to keep a track on on national politics as mm. opposed to just federal politics. Definitely. And uh, have a lovely week. Thank you. And you are listening to 3RRR. Uh, as I mentioned 
It's Uncommon Sense. And we have uh, with us in the studio right now, Sarah Brugler, who is a lawyer from Environmental Justice Australia. And she is here to discuss the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, uh, which is a Victorian act which was uh, put together and ascended into legislation in 1988, which means that it's pretty much the same age as me, which is kind of disturbing. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks very much for having me, Amy. Um, And uh, what do you think about this, that we've had an act in place for that long and we haven't once reviewed it or amended it? Well, there have been attempts to review it, but um, in terms of fundamental review, it's never been successful in passing through um, government processes. So it's always got stuck along the way. So this is a real opportunity that we have at the moment to review and reform this what is now quite a significantly outdated environmental law for Victoria. And it was an election promise to review this law, wasn't it? That's right, yep. This this was a, a promise that was made before this current state Labor government came to power. Um, and so, and there, there certainly is commitment to fulfil this promise, but what we need to make sure now is that what comes out of this review um, does have fundamental impacts for improving the state of nature in Victoria. Absolutely. So So let's just take a a step back with this Act and look at why it was put into, uh, I guess, legislation in the first place. What is the aim of the current Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act um, and why, like, let's just actually, let's start with that because I know that's a big question in in and of itself. Sure. So um, at the time that the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act was was put in place, it was actually a pretty impressive piece of environmental legislation. As you said, it was introduced in 1988 and that sort of was the predecessor to many of the environmental laws that we have around Australia at the moment. So it predated the, the national environmental law, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. And in terms of that, it, it was pretty groundbreaking for its time. And one of the key reasons for that is that it has as its key aim, this guarantee as as is included in its title. And the guarantee is that um, all, all flora and fauna can survive and flourish in the wild. So that, that was what, what the Act is trying to do, is to make sure that species don't go instinct and extinct and that they can continue to survive in, in the wild. So that's a pretty ambitious um, goal for uh, an environmental piece of legislation. Yeah, and it has a few tiers or parts to it that are, are meant to, I guess, contribute to the state's ability to ensure that guarantee is upheld. What are some of the key mechanisms in the legislation at the moment and how are they currently working? So to start with the second part of the question, they're not working. Um, the, The key tools that are included in the Act at the moment is that it's got this process to list threatened species. Um, And so once you list threatened species, there are then um, certain processes in place that that you're meant that the government is meant to do to try and protect those species. So one of the first things that the government has to do is once a species is listed, it has to prepare an action statement. And an action statement is kind of like a, a recovery plan for each species that is listed. So that's something that the government has to do under the um, under the current Act. There are then options for the government for, for what they can do to try and um, improve the situation for this threatened species. And that is um, they can declare critical habitat and 
and protect that critical habitat for a threatened species. They can also enter into public authority management agreements and that's an agreement that can be entered into, into with a public authority that's managing a piece of land that's important for a listed species. Um, and, and so they're some of the, the key tools that, that are in the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act. But implementation of these tools has been really bad. So we've got this growing list of threatened species in Victoria. Um, but in terms of the mandatory component, which is preparation of the action statement or recovery plan for each listed species, we've got less than 50% of them have been produced. And that's over the course of 30 years now that the FFG Act has been in place, or almost 30 years. So is it just a huge backlog of... That's right, there is. Right. Yep. And then the other tools that are discretionary, like critical habitat and public authority management agreements, mm. There've been no public authority management agreements in the last 10 years and there've been no protections of critical habitat over the entire course of the FFG Act. That's staggering. So it's a pretty <laughs> bad state of affairs. And mm. this is something that has been documented, um, particularly in the last decade. There's been a um, Victoria Auditor General's um, report on implementation and administration of the FFG Act. And these are the some of the things that, the issues that that report raised. And also um, my organisation, Environmental Justice Australia, has also been producing reports, um, building on the Auditor General's reports focusing on this this poor state of affairs of implementation of the FFG Act. Mm. And if we think about some of the current examples, um, just to kind of bed it in reality for some of um, the people listening, I mean, we just spoke a few weeks ago with David Lindenmeyer, who's a professor at A. Um, at the ANU and he's done huge amounts of research into the area um, where the proposed Great Forest National Park would be and one of those um, critically endangered species is the Leadbeater's possums which most people know about. There's a lot of other um, species there which are also endangered but how, is that an example of where this act should be doing something and it's not? I think that's exactly right. I think the Leadbeater's possum is the perfect example of where we should have had critical habitat declared to protect this species. At the moment, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act is doing very little to protect this species. The, the rules and regulations that are governing forestry are what's in play in terms of how that industry is regulated. But the nature protection law, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, which is specifically meant to be governing threatened species like a critically endangered species like the Leadbeater's possum is not having any impact. So that just sort of shows that we haven't quite got the situation right in terms of what our environmental laws are doing and, and what we, we think they should be doing and then what's happening in practice. Exactly. So as you say, the, the Act should address that issue, but it's not. And that's because the, the implementation or what's happening in practice isn't happening um, in the, and the particular department that uh, is part of this Act and I guess enacts it in their everyday lives is the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, uh, which there's a lot going on in that department to begin with. So that might be half the problem why maybe there's a lack of resources. But what has been the discussion about this in terms of the what has gotten dropped? Why has the ball been dropped when it comes to the current Act not being um, implemented? Well, I think it's probably for a series of reasons. And I mean, 
as you said, I think lack of government resources towards implementation of the Act has been a big problem. And I think now the Act is, it's it's quite old and it hasn't been used. And once that sort of, I guess, mentality starts to, um, to embed itself in a government department and even in people's thinking around the Flora and Fauna and Guarantee Act, it just kind of continues. And I think that's why review and reform of this Act, it needs to come really quickly to try and change that current situation. And that will hopefully change um, both government action and also communities' feelings around what these laws can and should be doing to protect um, the species they love and the places that they love. Yeah. And um, so let's talk about the consultation paper that's out. It's a rather long piece. I think it was like 172 pages or something like that. Um, I tried to read the executive summary even, which, but even then I kind of got bogged down in a lot of the language, which um, there were so many impacts and outcomes and efficiencies and things that I quite couldn't quite understand. But the Environmental Justice Australia organisation of which you are from has some excellent, more plain English uh, language versions and uh, proposals and discussion papers for people to that are interested in this issue to look at. So maybe instead of going to the consultation paper, we'll look at how you can break it down for us. Um, so in terms of reform and what's on the table from the government's perspective and what they've put in that paper, um, what have they looked at? Like where are the areas that they have suggested might need um, reforming? Sure. And I think to to start with, because it's easy to, um, I guess, start to feel a bit negative about where this process is going. But as, as we said at the start, this was a government commitment and it came from a positive promise to try and improve the situation for the environment. So that means that there is an opportunity on the table to try and improve um, the state of nature protection in Victoria. But as you say, the consultation paper is complicated and there is a lot of very uh, very much policy speak and it's hard to debunk what's being said and so we we have tried what we've got on our website a series of resources probably the most relevant is a briefing paper that that provides just some initial takes on what our thoughts are on the consultation paper and there are some things in the consultation that we think do move in the right direction in in terms of they could improve the current situation through things like um, making better availability for public information and there are some proposals to try and improve the enforcement tools in the FFG Act. So at the moment it's very hard because it's only criminal prosecutions under the FFG Act which requires a high um, burden of evidence and so there are proposals to have sort of a, a tiered suite of, um, of tools so that you could have some um, depending on the offence you can have some some lesser enforcement tools available so whether it's a community service order if someone's doing the wrong thing or although those types of um, pro or those types of offence those types of enforcement tools or there are also proposals to increase um, penalties so that they actually do have a significant deterrent role. So there's some of the better things in the consultation paper. Some of the more um, things that we are cautioning against, as I mentioned, there is this guarantee in the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act so that there is this high level of ambition. There doesn't seem to have the high level of ambition in the consultation paper. So there's a, there's a move away from a guarantee that all species can survive and flourish in the wild. And, and we think that's really concerning because if the Act doesn't have, 
it doesn't start out as having a high level ambition, then you're kind of just accepting that um, things will decline. Things will decline. Mm. And while we know that, of course, it's challenging and in the face of climate change, there's always going to be challenges and it, it may not be possible to save every species. But if we don't try to do it, then um, we're, we're just we're just saying that it's too hard and we're, we're not going to give it a good crack. So we think that the level of ambition needs to be raised. And I think what also needs to happen is that there just needs to be a high standard of protection for the environment. And I don't think that's currently in the consultation paper to say in certain circumstances, certain activities can't proceed. There's no real mechanism in the Act at the moment to say, no, this is too damaging. This doesn't. Um, this doesn't comply with with the high level of ambition and what we're trying to protect. So therefore, this certain activity can't proceed, or it has to be amended before it can ca- be carried forward. Mm. As we talked about with forestry, what often happens is is certain activities are regulated under their own individual regulation, like the Forestry Acts or the Planning and Environment Act, or or other sp- specific pieces of laws, but that don't necessarily take into account to a sufficient degree the environmental components that we're trying to protect. This Act is meant to be an environmental law and environmental considerations could should come first and foremost. So do you think that if we're trying to understand um, what Victorians would agree upon as being important things to either not do or do, that perhaps we should make sure that we have a, a bigger um, public consultation with Victorians? Because I know we've got submission process, which is one way of engaging. But do you think there could be more um, consultation? Because if you're talking about something like, um, you know, banning certain activities, you know, you need a very courageous government to just go out out on a limb and suggest it to not do something. Is is one way of um, being able to make big steps like that to actually, is, you know, consult first and be have that kind of backing of the community? I think that's right. I think uh, um, um, at the moment this review has taken place, it's been an internal government review and there hasn't been much engagement with um, regional Victoria and even um, stakeholder engagement outside of the larger environment groups and outside the larger industry representative groups. Um, So I think that that is a really important point. And I think that's why it's important and why this is really important for all your listeners to take this opportunity to respond to the submission, even if you don't quite understand maybe all the details in the consultation paper. It's just putting forward your views of what you expect of something like the FFG Act? What do you think it should be doing? What can you see it's not doing? And then um, what you'd like to see um, to happen in the to happen for a reformed FFG Act. And so I think that's really important for as many people as possible to respond to this consultation to show that there are a lot of Victorians that do care and that are interested and to um, make sure that this this review is a positive one and does actually um, have meaningful impacts. And just to go back to when I was talking about banning certain activities, Mm. I, I didn't mean that the FFG Act should have blanket bans in the FFG Act. But by introducing a standard of protection, you kind of have like a a test to say, if you are going to adversely affect this species or this landscape in a particular way, then this activity shouldn't be allowed to proceed. Mm. And there might be certain circumstances where that might happen. Um, So it's sort of, it's that sort of, I guess, how you would incorporate a standard of protection within the FFG Act. Definitely. And let's go to some of the other um, suggestions that 
Environmental Justice Australia has put forward as well um, to strengthen some of these suggested reforms because, as you say, it's a really great positive opportunity to affect change here um, and I'm sure the government is entering into it with a, an open mind and wanting um, to get the best result because uh, I, I have been at least heartened by some of the great things they've been doing recently. So also there are some other things which we were talking off air about like um, the nature cop on the beach so to mm. speak and you know because obviously we need to know when things aren't going well for the environment to begin with you need some people on the ground to be able to know about it and then to do something about it mm-hmm. what kind what would that look like and what was that uh, why was that part of the suggestion so i think um what we thought would really help to improve enforcement of the FFG Act is to have this independent entity that was monitoring what was happening in terms of implementation of the FFG Act. And that could be um, someone like we currently have in Victoria, the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability. They could be an appropriate um, authority to monitor implementation of the FFG Act. But then on top of that, to also have an independent body to actually undertake the enforcement. So it's sort of taking away some of the often complicated, you might have the Department of the Environment doing a particular activity that might be contrary to the FFG Act, but you've also got that same department that's responsible for enforcement. So there can be tensions within that, but if you had an independent authority, it takes away some of those tensions and it also can create greater greater transparency for enforcement and what's actually happening under the FFG Act. Yeah. And what about some of the things that would strengthen where there are issues at the moment? Like, for example, those um, the statements like making a list and adding uh, threatened species onto these lists. Um, how would we improve that in the Act? So at the moment, there are quite good proposals in the consultation paper around um, streamlining the lists that exist in Victoria, because it's a bit of a shambles at the moment. There's in the Victorian government holds a whole lot of different threatened species lists. There's an advisory list, there's the FFG Act list, there's also a national threatened species list. And so there's competing lists that are all apply, applied in different ways. So there is a proposal to streamline that listing processes and to um, make it compliant with um, IUCN, which is the international standard of, of listing. And I think that would be um, certainly improve the current situation where at the moment the FFG Act list often isn't the list that is applied in various planning processes, it's more the advisory list. So I think the proposals certainly do help to, to um, improve the listing processes. But the next stage is then what happens once you've got these species listed and you want to make sure that um, this focus on recovery of these species and keeping species off the lists in the first place and then those that are listed you want them to get off the list. And so that's, I think, the really important aspect of what are the proposals around um, trying to improve that current situation. And at the moment, I don't think the consultation paper quite goes far enough. There's this move towards landscape scale planning. And I think that's really good and it's really important but it can't come at the expense of individual species protection. So the point there is they're seeking to make things more efficient and to have, I guess, a holistic view of all of the different endangered species and critical um, habitats. And instead of focusing on individual action plans or statements per species, they were looking for, I guess, a mosaic of um, 
one plan which encompasses all of those species? That, that's exactly right. And and that is a way through the landscape action planning model. It, it should be a way to engage regional communities to help formulate those plans. So uh, we certainly think that they are a really important um, process. And I failed to mention at the start, the FFG Act was never only just a threatened species law. It's also meant to be a wider biodiversity conservation law as well. And I guess that's what those that landscape planning framework can try and help to um, not just focus on threatened species, but but ecosystems as a whole and and um, that those types of really important ecosystem functioning processes. But as I say, that's that's really important to have that, but you also need to have those protections in place for species that are threatened, like the leadbeater possums, even species that maybe aren't critically endangered, but are in continual decline. Around Melbourne, there's striped legless lizards that their habitat is constantly being um, threatened by urban development and their grasslands is constantly mm. being consumed. Um, I just saw one of those, a picture of them. It looks like a snake, a really tiny snake. Really little. They're really cute. Yeah. Um, and they were putting them in Little River because there's apparently a, a kind of private um, sanctuary out there where they were, they've built this special environment just for these legless lizards. Right, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there are some great... Um, initiatives that are um, being undertaken. From the community. From the, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. I think we need to try and ensure that when we are developing our, our suburbs, we need to have mechanisms in place to make sure that there is still some space for species like those striped legless lizards. Because if we continue to eat up the habitat like we are doing, they will no longer um, be part of our ecosystem. Mm. And part of the thing that I read in this process about was about land clearing and native vegetation. Mm. And and that Victoria actually has the least amount or has cleared the most uh, of our native vegetation. Yeah, that's right. And that's sort of a real historical factor of, you know, it's been a, a highly populated state for, for probably the longest period of time. So th- what we're working from is that Victoria is, it's 50% of native vegetation has been lost. More than two thirds of um, native ecosystems have been altered through urban and agricultural processes. So we're working off a low base. And I think that comes back to the ambition. We need to not only try and protect what we've got, but we need to try and restore to try and improve the current situation as well. So I think we're in quite a, that's in a way why Victoria is in a different situation to other states, because we've already sort of come, I guess, to the knife's edge. Now it's time to say, right, enough's enough. Let's try and improve the current situation. So I think that's really important um, for the ambitions and what the Act is trying to do. So you need to have protections for individual species. You need to enable communities to become a part of landscape scale planning, but at the same time, you need to be working towards restoration and improving the current situation for the environment. Definitely. And also engaging in, uh, engaging with urban uh, people as well, because we have a stake in this and a responsibility just as much as regional Australians. Very much so. And there's so much you can do in urban environments. One of the, there's also a, a component of the FFG Act is, and this is how how it operates um, beyond just threatened species protection is you also have a biodiversity strategy or what's now referred to as the biodiversity plan. And there are targets in that biodiversity plan. And we really, there are proposed to be targets. It's a draft biodiversity plan. It will be finalised soon. And that's part of this whole review process that the current government is undertaking. But what we have recommended is that there should be urban biodiversity targets within that plan. And that should actually be mandated in the FFG Act to say, let's try and improve the amount of threat 
threatened species that exist in our urban environment. Let's try and raise the profile of threatened species in urban environments. Let's build it into school curriculums. Let's try and do a whole lot of work because I think unless... Um, urban communities, that's where the majority of Victorians live, unless they are connected to nature, then it's pretty difficult to try and save something that um, people aren't connected to. Definitely. All you have to do is look at the legless lizard and fall in love (laughs) because it's really cute, as you say. Um, we, uh, we've run out of time, but I'm really um, thankful for you for giving your time and your expertise because this is something which f- has fascinated me and uh, we want to keep track of this and certainly hope that those listening will take some action, uh, make a submission which you can do online or on paper um, via the postal method and also uh, write to your local member and or the minister responsible, which is Lily D'Ambrosio. That's right. And uh, also check out envirojustice.org.au because they have all the resources you could possibly need to actually engage with this further. Um, And if you want to listen back to this this interview with Sarah Brugler from Environmental Justice Australia, you will be able to listen back to it uh, on Triple R On Demand and on our podcast. So please do check that out if you missed the start of the interview. Thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Amy. It's been an absolute pleasure. So submissions close on the 28th of March so get on it yeah (laughs) very quickly but uh, it's as Sarah said it's really easy to make a contribution and that it will be heard and I guess it's also not as not even just the quality which I'm sure will be high but also the volume of submissions and engagement from the community and you are listening to 3RRR, this show, Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And uh, we have a pretty special interview uh, with two fantastic women. So we get to talk about my favourite things in this interview. Um, women doing amazing things, tick. Uh, regional Australia and my favourite town in Victoria, Fish Creek, tick. Um, and also the environment. So I think we're really killing it today. Uh, so I'll just introduce our wonderful guests. We've got Catherine Forge, who is um, a curator curator of the Invisible Farmer Project. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thank you so much, Amy. It's great to be here. Um, and then we have Amelia Bright, who is a farmer from Fish Creek. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And Amelia, um, just to give some context for our listeners, um, your farm is predominantly a pig farm? Absolutely. Um my husband and I run Amber Creek Farm and Sawmill and we're based in Fish Creek and um, my husband mills uh, sustainably salvaged uh, logs into timber um, and we also, the animals we have on the farm are our heritage, um, heritage breed pigs. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting about that. Um, I'm just going to um, throw to Catherine first um, for a bit of background into this project and why it's been um, brought forward or created in the first place. So, Catherine, um, you work at Museums Victoria um, and we this is a project that's led by them, but there are a whole range of organisations involved and there's a lot of research that's going to be done into women in farming and women in agriculture in Australia. But let's talk about why we need that in the first place. So women farmers, they have historically existed, but have they been called farmers? It's a very good question. Um, And it goes back really 
back, you know, over 100 years ago to um, really work out why women maybe perhaps have not been given that term farmer. Often women were historically referred to as the farmer's wife. And there's a number of uh, reasons why that may have happened. So um, one of those is cultural. There's been this uh, almost an obsession in Australia with our bushmen and our bush rangers, uh, Clancy of the Overflow and, you know, the man from Snowy River. We've got this very masculine national identity that hinges on bush culture. Um, less known are the women and what they were doing on the land. Uh, we also have some very legal limitations that have really prevented women's work from being recognised and counted. So, um, I guess the most obvious one would be in 1891 where women were decided to be completely uh, obliterated from the census. So the census was not going to record farm women's work because at the time we have to remember that uh, women's work was considered to be appropriate if it was indoor homework, domestic work. Uh, men's work was outdoor in terms of that that ideology of what was acceptable. But we know for a fact that women were working in a number of roles. They had uh, a number of hats that they wore, it, were indoors, outdoors. So, it, it, but the legal definition was that women had to be indoors. And let's think about this because I I even I remember having going on a bit of a Twitter rant maybe four years ago um, when we were there were nationals candidates out talking about the farmer and his wife um, the farmer and his wife well I'm like well maybe it's the farmer and the farmer absolutely you know what I mean? absolutely and uh, it seems to be quite an unconscious thing now that we've just assumed that it's the men who would naturally be doing the heavy lifting or the um, you know physical labor but uh, from my perspective anecdotally um, I, I have a, a nana who was a farmer, but I didn't call her a farmer. Uh, but upon reflection and thinking about this project, I have reevaluated her role and her title. Actually, I think she was more of a farmer than most of her uh, sons and husband were. And she really did all the heavy lifting because she was not only out there milking cows and um, making sure that things happened, but also doing all of that domestic labour as well, um, which seems to be a common theme now women are still doing kind of both they're being professional and also doing um the domestic duties uh, more than more than men are um i just want to um bring in Catherine here uh from fish creek um so Catherine, oh sorry amelia i'm getting my my names mixed up um amelia so with your uh work you didn't start out um in farming but how did you come to it uh, it, well, it was initially led by my husband, and uh, he grew up on a dairy farm at the neighbouring property to ours. And when we were looking at, um, at the time, we both had off-farm income and other careers, and we were looking at how we were going to make the land pay for itself and to have both of our lives go from off-farm work to being able to live on our farm and you know live in Fish Creek without travelling. Um, and when we were looking at methods that, that might make that possible, it was the dual income streams still with the sawmill and the pigs and that they were going to be complementary to each other and how we go about our day-to-day farming structure. And we they sound quite at odds with each other, but they're very complementary in how we use the waste and the pigs and it all fits well together. 
and when lots of people are doing direct sales of lamb and beef in our area to a very very high standard um but there's a large gap for pigs and high welfare uh, pigs and pork in the area so that was an obvious choice apart from a pet pig that my husband had had as a child we'd not um, ever raised pigs so we started with six ourselves and then you know nutted out the bits and pieces that we needed to improve on and what they were like and made sure we liked working with them uh, and then within a year that kind of grew to over 120 uh, and we're sitting at around um Oh, we have about 100 pigs on the farm at any one time at the minute with, with space to grow. Um, so that's how we kind of yeah, came to have pigs in the beginning. That's quite an amazing journey. Um, how long did it take for you both to build up your, your pig farming practice, that side of it? Uh, in the early days, um, things were even more labour-intensive than they are now. Um, there was a lot of trial and error with we theoretically had an idea of how we wanted to run the pig, but it, after probably about 12 months, it was becoming really apparent that it wasn't the best system for our farm and the soil we had. Um, and really the soil's key both to the pig's health and the environment, uh, as well as our uh, management systems as well. So we needed to make some pretty um, big changes and we'd started making those changes and we completed an um, environmental management uh, systems course through a local land care group um, and that was ha- able to help us accelerate that process and implement the system that we currently use across the farm. They still uh, have access to pasture you know, 24 hours a day. They're still free-range their quality of life I would say is probably higher because they're getting better uh, pasture quality Um, and the labour content has become much more uh, systematic and a bit like a Meccano set, like it's more clipped together, it's easier to implement Uh, so as far as our labour content that's dropped a little bit as well. Yeah, and I mean, let's talk about the pigs because um, pigs were one of my favourite animals, still are, um, and that's why I actually became vegetarian as I went to a pig farm in, I think it was somewhere near Malden, and... um, Obviously, the the values overlay in pig farming when I was in grade two were not particularly great in terms of animal welfare. But the great thing about um, your farm and the interview that you've done um, for the Invisible Farmer Project is you talk about your values overlay, which is about sustainability, but it's also about um, animal welfare and them having the happiest life they can. Um, can you kind of share with us some of the, those values that you have and how you've implemented them in your farming? Yep, um, so the values are kind of twofold. It's the best way to raise pigs, but it's also for our health and welfare. A conventional pig farming isn't overly healthy for the workers or the pigs. There's noise and dust and all sorts of other uh, issues that workers encounter. We don't have a noise and smell problem, and Catherine can attest to that. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's it, they're not noisy. We don't need to wear earmuffs. We're not in an echoing, shedded environment. Um, they make happy grunting noises, and if they're, you know, working out their social hierarchy, that's the only time that they'll be, you know, raising their voices and sorting each other out. But um, it, it, 
it, it, to us it doesn't make sense to raise pigs any other way. It, it, this is the pork that we like to eat and this is how we'd like to have all of our food and our farming systems run. Um, and really, I, I don't really see... I don't see a, uh, the, the point in having mass-produced meat just for the sake of protein. It's, we've got really good sources of protein from many other sources, and if we can't care for our animals and care for the product that we're putting into our own bodies, perhaps we shouldn't be eating the volume of meat that we're eating. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, it rem reminds me of many conversations I've heard in the country uh, where they reminisce about the good old days when pork actually tasted like pork. Um, I won't be able to understand that, but I, I can uh, cognitively understand that it must have tasted actually better uh, when pigs were treated like um, dignified animals uh, that had uh, feelings and um, senses. And one of the things that we see in the article is that you um, you don't do what traditional farmers would do, which would be to put a, a ring in their nose so that they can't um, forage in the ground. What's the reasoning behind that? Well, that was um, that was the real driver of why we changed our methods. In the beginning, we were um, grazing in the paddocks, but moving their house and water and moving to the next paddock. But because they're able to dig, they were turning over large patches of the ground in a not overly beneficial sort of way. Um, whereas now, it's, it's part of their, how they express, it's part of... Um, their diet, we rely on the pigs being able to forage for themselves and get um, all the proteins and bugs and they get a heap of enjoyment out of it. They're, um, they're, they're just much happier animals when they're able to express themselves without any limitations. Um, so that that's the key. You know, we don't feel we need to take that away and for us we needed to find a better solution to manage their behaviours and we've done that with using the waste from the sawmill uh, to create areas within their paddocks that uh, are easier to dig. We're on uh, clay soil so it can be quite hard to dig so by adding the wood chips and sawdust to an area within their paddock and having the spilt feed and their house and wallow in that area, they're able to dig and they're encouraged to dig in that section. And then they, they kind of seem to get it out of their systems and they're able to freely graze through the paddock and pasturing crops that we've got there for them. And they tend not to turn over too much, um, too much of the paddock then. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things I wanted to touch on before I go to Catherine um, was your focus on sustainability, which you've um, mentioned there briefly. Is um, your property uh, had lost um, quite a bit of vegetation over time, and one of the things that um, you have focused on is revegetating your property. Um, what what has been involved in that process, and um, how has that? Uh, why was that important to you as a farmer? Uh, again, it's the environment, both for our animals and for us. We live in a high wind area, and I find it pretty unpleasant to be battered by the wind 24 hours a day. And as far as for the animals, it affects their growth and comfort. So we've uh, fenced off and planted out 
anything that you can't drive a tractor on. So all of the gullies and along the creek line and we're finishing off some of the last bits of around the boundary of our property. So pretty much in any weather, in any paddock, you're able to get out a bit of out of the direct line of wind in some capacity uh, and that helps with the animal's comfort and growth uh, and it's also much nicer to be working outside for us. Definitely. And I mean, if people haven't been to Fish Creek, um, there are a lot of uh, rolling hills and wide open spaces. So um, it is good to hear that there are more trees and um, native vegetation coming back. Um, But it's also the gateway to Wilson's Promontory, which is um, a beautiful place in and of itself. Um, So I'm going to uh, just have a quick chat to Catherine now about um, some of the other uh, stories that we're hearing about um, um, through this project of the Invisible Farmer Project. Um, in terms of women today in Australia, we know that uh, women farmers are not a new thing, um, that they're just farmers. As we heard from uh, Amelia, she's a farmer. She happens to be female, um, but she's, you know, just doing what all of the other uh, farmers are doing um, when they have a pig farm. Um how, like, what are the stories that you're hoping to uncover through the Invisible Farmer Project and how are you actually uncovering them like Amelia's story? Okay, um, I, hope, I was hoping to uh, just start with a couple of uh, statistics yeah, just go to ahead. sort of illustrate why the stories of uh, people like Amelia are so important in today's current context. So um, it wasn't until the 1970s that women were legally permitted to study agriculture or live on agricultural campuses. Uh, Women had no voting rights on farm organisations until the 1990s. It wasn't until 1994 that the Australian Law Reform Commission reviewed farm women's legal status and defined them as farmers, not farmers' wives. Uh, And then also this other, uh, in terms of global uh, farming, women produce uh, more than half of the food grown in the world. Roughly 1.6 billion women depend on agriculture for their livelihoods, but receive only about 5% of agriculture extension services and own about 2% of land worldwide. So when we're looking towards the future and we've got these issues like food security, climate change, drought, globalisation, women's stories such as Amelia's, women that are doing these amazing things on their farms, it's so important that we start to listen to these voices and really incorporate incorporate them not only in uh, society, but also incorporate their voices in positions of leadership. So hopefully by uncovering and and documenting more of these stories, there will be some ripple on ripple effects. Absolutely. And some of those um, regional bodies, which uh, it's on the website, um, they had some a snapshot of statistics and it's pretty dire. Um, if you look at agricultural commodity councils, um, when that data was measured in 2005, it was 91% male. Uh, rural representative bodies, 87% male. Publicly listed agricultural companies, 93% male. I'm not so surprised. Uh, regional development boards, 75% male. So that's the best that we get in terms of women's representation representation in leadership in agriculture and farming. Mm. But we know that women are contributing 50%. Hugely, absolutely. So it's, um, yes. So in terms of the project and how we're looking to 
uh, record these stories. Uh, we have partnerships with a number of uh, organisations, including ABC Rural, who just last week on International Women's Day announced a tribute call-out for anyone to log into ABC Rural and upload a story of a farming woman that you might know. So if you know a farming woman, uh, get onto ABC Open and and make a, a tribute to her. Mm. Historically or current? Historically or current, yes, yes. So um, it could be through interviewing someone. You might want to interview, if you're a younger person, you might want to interview your grandma and um, just log on, upload one photo and, and share your story. Um, we also have partnered with the National Library of Australia and we'll be conducting 45 life history interviews that really go into great detail. Um, and we're looking at a particular uh era in Australian history, which happened during the 80s and 90s, which was the Australian Rural Women's Movement. And I actually grew up uh, in Warrigal, Gippsland, which is where this movement occurred. But um, to be completely honest with you, when I went through education, went to Melbourne Uni to study history, I didn't really know what was going on in Gippsland. I was attracted by, you know, going and studying Middle Eastern politics and, and world trade and all that sort of thing. And then I looked back um, when I got into this sort of area of history later on in life and realised that there'd been this hotbed of activity in Gippsland in the 1990s that then went through all of Australia and that these women had done so much, but it's really not been recorded. Interesting. And is that going to be the subject of, um, as you say, interviews as well as academic research? Absolutely. So there will be uh, two PhD students appointed on the project. One of those will look at the history of the rural women's movement. Uh, another one will be looking at contemporary issues in agriculture. We also Great. have a PhD student uh, who's based overseas who will be looking at comparative studies. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, and uh, in terms of, I guess, the focus of um, Museums Victoria and the blog that um, you've got up there on the Invisible Farmer Project, um, we see uh, Amelia's story, I think is the first story um, from Amber Creek Farm and you can check it out on invisiblefarmer.net.au if um, anyone's interested to check that out. And also there's some great photographs taken by you, Catherine, for that story. And I know you interviewed Amelia uh, and we'll come to Amelia in just one second. Um, but what's the, the aim, I guess, of for the online component of this project and um, the stories that you're highlighting through the, the blog? Absolutely. So through the Museum Victoria blog, um, we have done some other interviews. So stay tuned. They will be uh, coming up. So the last interviews I did were with uh, other women, younger women in their 20s and 30s who are doing amazing things on their farms around Gippsland. But as we uh, continue with the project, we'll be travelling around and uh, capturing stories. We want to try within uh, the parameters of the project to capture the diversity of experience so across different industries, um, I know people often think when you say farming or, or women on the land, um, you might uh, think of uh, dairy farming or um, horticulture, but there's other industries such as uh, women in seafood, uh, aquaculture. So we're hoping to really um, engage with all of those various uh, primary industry groups and also across um, the generations. 
Great. Um, and I guess this is really important is to create role models as well for other women who might see that farming may not be for them um, because they, they don't see the women around them. Um, if you've grown up with it, you probably have seen the women role modelling this because they're, they're there. Mm. Uh, but for people who uh, didn't grow up in the country and may not realise this is um, a pathway for them, is that one of the aims of this project? Certainly, we do have a series of, of guiding principles that guide the sort of theoretical side of the project. And one of those is that we really want to be cognisant of the various connections that can be formed. So really important today is that connection between uh, producer and consumer, the connection between younger and older generations and the connection between city and country. Because I think there's this lack of awareness for a lot of people living in the city about where their food is coming from, how it's being produced. And um, it's just so important that people are aware of people like Amelia producing this ethically sourced food and knowing that they can, you know, that's saying, vote with your dollar. Absolutely. And let's um, just bring in Amelia. Um, thanks for being so patient, Amelia, while I uh, juggle this interview. Um, and Amelia, in terms of your um, consumer, which we we're just um, kind of t talking about, I know that um, you are very localised and there are a whole range of ways that you sell directly to consumers in the South Gippsland region. Um, but more broadly, do you have um, some dedicated customers in urban areas as well? Yeah, we do have a small number. Um, it's, I suppose, our both um, my husband and I's networks predominantly are local, and so that's where we've focused in the you know first five years or so of our business selling port is to the local area. Um, but I do have a number of customers that either come down on holiday to our area, and Fish Creek being such a tourist hotspot, uh, people can also you know pick up their pork on their way home from their holiday and, and that sort of thing. I occasionally also do um, Melbourne drop-offs for bulk orders as well uh, and, and that's by an order system and just suits in with both parties. Yeah, our Catherine was just pointing to herself saying, that's me <laughs> yeah. coming down. I actually didn't eat a lot of pork. I, um, I am concerned about uh, ethical uh, process, but going and visiting Amelia's farm, those uh, pigs are, are treated very well. So. <laughs> That's wonderful to you. And I, yeah, I, when I went down to uh, Waratah Bay for a holiday, we stopped by through Lee and Gather and Foster on the way. And there's some really amazing local produce there, which, um, it, yeah, we were salivating over um, and took some of it back. Um, so I think that is a, a one very key reason why people should visit South Gippsland and uh, fish. Creek is to sample um, the local produce and there's also wineries there too. And Amelia, in terms of um, the farming community in Fish Creek and also um, more broadly that you're connected in with, we were just talking there about role models and other women um, in farming. What um, has your observation been in terms of the number of women um, involved in farming in, in the region that you, uh, you know, interact with and meet with? Uh, it, it's uh, varied. Um, there's probably within the small producer network, as far as you know, smaller farms or direct selling models. I would say the percentage of um, of work would be done and headed by uh, women uh, for one reason or the other. Uh, 
uh, heading more, I would estimate over 80% would be driven by women. It's not to say there's not a partnership behind, um, you know, what's publicly presented, but, you know, predominantly it's women. And I don't know whether that's, you know, perhaps farms are running two models and, you know, the partner's running a conventional model and they're sidelining and doing a direct sales. And for that to be able to happen, uh, that's meant that the female in the part in partnership stepped forward and is uh, using their networking skills and all of the connections that they've met throughout the town and their involvement in the community and they're using that to move product um, as far as looking at some of the conventional farms within our region and farming fam- family friends it's it's people just hop in and jump in together and just need to work to survive and that means it's a partnership it's people don't i don't think sit down and work out oh division of skills and labor we've got tasks that need to be done and both parties hop in and do it and so i think outwardly it perhaps looks like a very male um dominated industry but on the ground it would be an equal partnership to be able to survive, there's very slim margins in farming and in food production and there's huge risks that are carried um, by having a farm and having animals and um, maintaining their health and looking after them to the point to get to either dairy or meat. Um, and similarly with vegetables and growing things, we have storms and weather events that completely wipe out things. So food production is a very high risk area. and can't be um, worrying about who's doing what too much. Everyone needs to be hopping in to make that uh, a viable um, option to be able to maintain living in these rural areas. Absolutely. Um, Well, it's a true family business and certainly that's the case um in terms of the farms that i've seen Uh, no one sat around and yeah exactly as you say divided up the labor and said you're better at cooking so you stay inside um and uh and really as you say there are you know lowering margins and one of those you know more public areas is dairy farming um and it certainly there's a lot of farmers under stress um in terms of your participation in this project what has been the response to your story and what do you hope to see come out of it oh it's been a lot larger than i expected i guess i don't know (laughs) if i had any um concrete expectations but it's been really nice to see and to have I guess some public support and people saying yep we're really happy to hear your story and to see what's happening and um, it's I guess a validation that you don't think about too much when you're day to day and it's very you know really it's not too exciting day to day you feed pigs and you care for them and you do your tasks and it's it's my job but um when you look at it and you look at the larger picture and how um, how we all are connected together as far as uh, having a thriving rural community, that part of it's really exciting and I'm really interested to hear other people's stories and see where they've come from because you know, there's probably relatively few people that are... Um, picking up succession farming at this point in time in our region. There's a lot of people that have come to farming from a whole heap of different um, pathways and 
seeing how people have ended up and have become so passionate in food production, I find personally really interesting. Absolutely. There's not no one story is the same. So um, really looking forward to seeing the other stories that emerge. Thank you, um, Amelia, for joining us and sharing your story. It's absolutely fascinating and we really appreciate your time and, um, yes, stories and expertise. Well, thanks, Amy, and thanks, Catherine, too, for having us being part of the program and um, project. Oh, thank you, Amelia. We're so uh, honoured and grateful to have had your story. Um, that was uh, Amelia Bright, who is from Amber Creek Farm in Fish Creek, which is in South Gippsland, if you don't know where that is. And it's actually not that far to drive to Fish Creek if you're from Melbourne. It's about two hours and 15 minutes, depending on the traffic. Um, so it's totally within range for a weekend trip. And there's Wilson's Prom so close too. Absolutely, really close. Um, it, I guess Fish Creek is probably the closest you're going to get to Wilson's Prom. Um, and there's some other beautiful places there too, like Waratah Bay. Um, so check that out. Uh, but also, Catherine, just to kind of round out the discussion... As you said, people can get involved in this project. It's not um, off in an office somewhere, um, just kind of being produced by office workers. It's actually an out there on the ground uh, project and it's also an online um, component. So people can take part in either. Could you kind of share, I guess, how people could get involved if they wanted to or yeah, are interested? Absolutely. Well, I would encourage people to do a quick Google search firstly, just type in Australian farmer and then see what uh, what comes up and you'll see that 80 to 90% of the images are of men. And then I would encourage you to change that because you can, because there's this opportunity now to upload a photo of a farm woman on the ABC Rural site. So that's ABC Open. Uh, and also you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. That is with the handle at Invis farmer and check out our website too so if you stay in touch that way we'll be doing call outs for more interviews and we'll also be uh, really looking at that ABC open uh, component at the moment. Great well let's hope that people can contribute because I'm sure in every family you know a woman who has been a farmer whether you called her a farmer or not is another thing but it's time to use the word uh, because women need to be able to own their contributions and for us to recognize their contributions as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us, Catherine, and sharing this great project with us. Thank you so much. And also thank you to all of those women that are providing us with our food. Absolutely. We are very grateful. <laughs> and you're listening to 3RRR with Amy Mullins, the show here, Uncommon Sense, and we're with you till noon. Um, we have had some pretty cracking interviews so far, if I do say so myself, um, with great, great women. Now we thought we'd better add a man in uh, and who better to talk to than Owen Harsey. Uh, Owen is a film director, among many other things. He also works at the University of Melbourne um, and he has come in to chat with us about the film he's made uh, and directed. It's called Michael, They've Shot Them and uh, it's about Australian history, one of my other pet topics. So I'm really looking forward to delving into the uh, various events that this film covers and uh, also why we're talking about it now. So welcome, Owen. Thanks very much, Amy. And um, thanks for joining us. So this film, uh, which I 
happened to see last year. And I think did that did the showing um, commemorate any particular event then? Yeah, it was shown last year at the State Library of Victoria and the University of Melbourne um, because basically it was a hundred years since um, Ireland's Easter Rising of 1916. This is a pivotal moment in Irish history, to be honest with you. It was a really poor rising. It was a failed rising for six days. The Irish rebels took over Dublin, but it was a pivotal moment in the formation of the Irish modern state. Definitely. And so that's what the film opens with. It talks about um, Easter Monday, uh, which is in 1916, when a group of men and women seized buildings across Dublin. And what their aim was, um, was to create an Irish Republic. And for people who aren't quite up to scratch on their um, British and Irish history, what who was governing Ireland at the time? Yeah, so Ireland was governed for nearly 700 years at that stage by uh, by by the British, by the English forces, and, and Dublin Castle was the seat of British power, basically. So the Irish rebels um, in secret led a rising. It was supposed to be on Easter Sunday, but it actually had to be changed because of some internal politics, as <laughs> usual. And um, it went ahead on Easter Monday, but it failed. They had hoped that the whole of Ireland would rise up in revolt against the English, but actually only they rose up in a small part of Dublin, even in the city centre of Dublin. And even Irish people reacted badly to the rising when they, when they were brought out, when the rising failed. Actually, the Irish people abused those who were in the rising because they destroyed the centre of Dublin. Mm. But it was what happened after that. It was when the English executed the leaders of the rising that led to a really growth in Irish nationalism, both um, in Ireland and it had an impact on the other side of the world here in Australia. Yeah, and so you talk about um, this armed rebellion, which was six days and, yeah, as you say, pretty failed. Um, It also had supplies from uh, Germany, which uh, was Britain's enemy in World War One, and as as the film shows, uh, World War One is the backdrop um, of which these events occur, and it was seen as treasonous um, to to be undertaking such an act um, during uh, World War One when Britain was under fire. What is the reason why? Um, the Irish had such a negative reaction to these um, rebels who decided to, you know, rise up. Were the were the rebels impatient with the the um, I guess prospect of change because there was some move towards Irish home rule, which isn't the same as being independent. Could you kind of share a bit of that? Yeah, there was Irish people in a way kind of had been slumbering into accepting their part as being part of the British Empire and home rule, which is a form of self self government, was promised to the Irish and. A lot of the Irish were, were kind of, you know, taking this on and believing this could, this could be what, what, what they should have, similar to what Australia had under the British Empire. But the Irish rebels, who weren't huge in number, they didn't want this. They wanted an independent Irish Republic. And you have, have to remember at this time, this was the only superpower primarily in the world at the time. So they had decided to rise against it and to, to really, they knew they were going to fail, but they wanted to ignite Irish nationalism and to stop that slumber, to mm. say, no, we are not going to be a colony with the British Empire. We are going to stand on our own two feet. And yes, they did bring in guns from Germany. And just like up the north, the Unionists also brought in guns as well. Um, the guns from Germany were caught. It was actually females who actually brought in the guns on the Asgard and the Hoat who brought it in into Dublin at the time and they were some of the leading gun runners for, for the Irish rebels at the time. Interesting. So women played um, just an equal role in this in this rebellion? Absolutely. Um, Countess Markovich was one of the leaders. She was the leaders of one of the um, rebellion squadrons. But interestingly in history, as, as history goes along, some of the women's roles were actually removed from it. There's Eileen O'Farrell. There's a famous photograph that was taken outside the GPO, the general post office where the Irish rebels surrendered. 
and um, Podrick Pierce was the leader but beside him was actually Eileen Farrell but you can't see her because the direction of the shot was taken and they actually believe she might have been um, <laughs> early Photoshop taking out with a photograph because they wanted the narrative to be Podrick Pierce and she was actually one of the people who went with Podrick Pierce to surrender to the English forces. And how inconvenient to have women <laughs> as I know. part of that. <laughs> Typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and really then you look at, um, the, I guess, these men who are the martyrs because they're shot um, and as the film shows, well, you know, they're given a soldier's death um, which really reinforces the whole point um, of what they were saying, which is they're independent, they're island soldiers, not Britain's soldiers. Um, you know, and these women, obviously, who were part of the rebellion weren't shot, so what happened to them? So, yeah, the, the British took a really bad decision there in actually shooting the, the leaders of the execution. They made them martyrs and they made them Irish martyrs in our history. In the narrative of, of our history, you go back to our history, Wolf Tone, all these leaders, and by executing these leaders, they created those heroes and a whole groundswell of opinion rose up and support rose up around them and probably the most one that would go on to be the father of the Irish state was Eamon de Valera who wasn't executed because he actually had um, an American passport his um, his mother was American so um, they actually by executing those leaders really ignited the Irish nationalism and, and that's what the rebels wanted to happen. Yeah, and um, and the women were pr- imprisoned or...? They were imprisoned. The women were imprisoned and, and actually some of them were, were, were let go. Countess Markovic got some prison but she was released and she would go on to actually play a role in the, in the formation of the Irish Parliament in, in later years. Interesting. So then we talk about, um, you know, this uh, martyrisation of um, these... How many men were there that, that were shot? There was 12. 12. Shot, yeah. yeah, so these men have been shot. Um, you know, it really, as you say, brings out really fervent nationalism. Meanwhile, and that's in Ireland, meanwhile in Australia, um, you know, there's plenty of Irish Catholics uh, who have immigrated to Australia. What was the proportion... Um, of Catholics who were Irish in Australia at that time. Yeah, you're looking at a quarter of the population, really. The Irish Catholics were the first serious, first significant ethnic group that emigrated to Australia by will or by not. Um, and you're looking at that early years of the 20th century and just, as, you know, you're going into the time when Australia, as you know today, the modern Australia was forming. You had that tension between Catholic and Protestant. You had the old world being brought into this new world here. So tensions were, were being created and then all you needed was was a, was a First World War, which happened at that time. So that really stirred up the sectarian pot in particular and looking at allegiances and if the Catholics were loyal to the, to the British forces, you know. Yeah, and in Australia, the film shows that a lot of uh, Irish Catholics were pro-home rule, um, which I guess you could say is the more moderate position. Um, and then, as you say, uh, the, there becomes this great indignancy um, in Australia, in as shown in the documentary, that people are disappointed and angered by these um, men and women who have been impatient, decided to um, take it all uh, with both hands and change things. Um, it, it's a failure. What uh, becomes the response in Australia in general to this um, event? Uh, you, you talk about the, the newspapers and you show the headlines. How, what kind of level of diversity of views and... Um, were at, in Australia at the time amongst the Irish Catholics in terms of home rule versus independence. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because before the execution of the 1916 leaders, 
Irish Australians really believed in home rule. They really followed that. There's a fabulous historian called um, Val Noon here in Melbourne who's done a lot of work into Nicholas O'Donnell and, and he was the leader of the Irish-Australian um, Catholic community at the time and he was um, really believed in our Ireland should have home rule. So the, the Irish-Australians followed that belief but the execution of the leaders and the entry of Daniel Mannix, Archbishop Mannix, into the equation really destroyed... Um, that movement towards home rule from the Irish Australians. And many Irish Australians, and Nicholas Donnell and others, their sons had gone to fight in the First World War. So they fully supported the British aims and they fully supported the home rule movement. But the changes of the geopolitical events in the First World War, the executions of the leaders and Archbishop Daniel Mannix, his role in particular, um, really changed the Irish Australian sentiment towards one that wanted an independent Ireland from, from Britain. Yeah, and then you mention here um, Archbishop Daniel Mannix, who is a very charismatic and um, famous character, should be more famous than he is, to be honest. Um, and he really um, comes to prominence in Melbourne. I mean, he's already prominent within his own community. He's um, at St. Mary's in West Melbourne. Um, but he uh, he comes from Ireland to Australia. And then when conscription comes up as a big issue in World War One, we have two plebiscites on conscription, uh, one in October in 1916 and then another in December in 2017. That's when he really gets in his stride. And and I guess the reason behind the title is quite revealing. I'll let you kind of discuss um, that. And as I, as I mentioned, it's called Michael, They've Shot Them. Um, what does this have to do with Daniel Mannix? Yeah, Mannix is a fascinating character. I sometimes think we Irish have an unhealthy fascination with Daniel <laughs> Mannix, to be quite honest. I think there's like nine books written about Daniel Mannix. But I didn't know about Daniel Mannix before I came to Ireland. I'm in this country five years and, and, and just touched upon it. I read um, Brendan Niles book on Mannix, recent book on Mannix. And there was one line in that that said the executions of the, of the leaders of the 1916 Rising moved Daniel Mannix. And I went, there's a story here. There's absolutely a story that hasn't been told in Australia and definitely hasn't been told in Ireland. Because Mannix came here to be the Archbishop, to be the leader of the Irish flock. Um, and when that execution occurred, he wasn't so much involved in politics in Australia. He was a bit in terms of education for funding for schools, but not so much. But when the execution happened, he actually turned, and this is in Brenda's book, he turned to his caretaker in, in St. Mary's, as, as you mentioned, and said, Michael, they've shot them. And he weeped as he said it. Um, it, it moved him. It had an emotional effect on him. And from that point, you could see that he waded deeper into Australian political waters. And he became more vocal in the debate on conscription, stating that it was Australia first. That Australia should put its own um, values and principles first and not just be a colony of, of Britain. And as a, Patrick O'Farrell, probably the, the Dinsian of Irish history here in Australia, he says, this is a controversial one, but he says that um, Australia's identity was formed by the Irish, by this fact of rebelling against the British ascendancy and actually saying that you should put Australia first and not just be a colony of Britain. So Mannix really came in that and really stirred the pot in relation to that. Well, it's not really a traditional role for a Catholic archbishop, is it? <laughs> no, definitely not but he was very good at it. He was brilliant yeah. at the speeches. Um, when I was reading on the history or, or research on it, he, fets were a big thing back then, you know, and he used to go and speak at these fets. But he was... Um he was a master of the soundbite and he really, like, you're talking thousands, tens of thousands of people turning up to these rallies. That was the entertainment of the day. So, And he really knew, he was a really good orator and he used to practice actually in, in the cathedral in St. Patrick's of how to how to lift his voice and how to project his voice. So he knew what he was doing and he practiced at it. So, yeah, he knew the role he was playing. Yeah, and 
let's talk about, I guess, the substance of what he's saying and why he's saying it. So um, conscription was put forward by Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who was a character in himself, um, and he was uh, at the time the Labor Prime Minister in 1916, um, and that saw, I guess, the split of the Labor Party. And the film does um, kind of cover this, is the that the Labor Party did have quite a few Irish Catholics and it was almost dominated by Irish Catholics. And when the, uh, the Labor Party split over the issue of conscription, really Billy Hughes and uh, his Protestant uh, colleagues went off and created the Nationals and uh, and then Labor Party was really left to be a very radical and Irish Catholic party, um, which then when you see Daniel Mannix coming out and being so um, opposed to conscription, he really led the anti-conscription campaign in Australia. Um, this kind of, I guess, tore at uh, progressive politics, didn't it? Yeah, it had a massive impact on the, on the trajectory of the Labour Party. That first split and and then if we just jump forward slightly, actually remember Mannix would go on to mentor B.A. Santa Maria, who another generation would know and, and the impact he would have the Labour Party in the split in 1955 and as I was doing the work on this documentary Emma, more and more people th- th- that split in 1955 is very emotional to a lot of people still to this day they speak to it with a, with a, with a different tone So that in, and, and Mannix mentored Santa Maria but yes he had the early split back there so he had a massive impact in terms of the Labour politics he knew what he was doing he was creating I believe and this is my opinion an Irish Australian Catholic force and he was galvanising that opinion here he came into a kind of a, a hostile environment that he d- wasn't expecting he came from a different environment in Ireland obviously where Catholicism was dominant and he, he, he kind of he, he found his nationalism here and he found that he could he was going to forge a Catholic force in Australia. Yeah because let's look at I guess where Ireland and the Irish come into anti-conscription because um, a lot of I mean when we look at the conscription campaigns there was a fairly clear divide between Protestants who were not always but generally pro-conscription and then Catholics who were anti-conscription and then as you say lots of those Catholics were Irish um, who were born in Ireland or of Irish descent you know there was there were reasons why it was Daniel Mannix who was leading that Discussion and also why nationalism, Irish nationalism, and Australian nationalism was tied into those campaigns. Can you pick apart, I guess, for us the the kind of inherent the nationalisms that were part of that anti-conscription campaign that that Daniel Mannix was touching on, and I guess did it reach? Um, what was the back and forth between Ireland and Australia within this? Yeah, so Ireland was still kind of forming into its its present day stage at that time, but Mannix really picked up on that nationalistic sentiments in terms of you should look out for Australia's own. Um, you know your own um, views first, or your own your own future first, basically. Um, Coming from an Irish perspective of being not independent from Britain, yeah, and that you should have seek more of an independence. You should go on your own way. At the time, Britain were looking for more and more men to fill a, a conveyor, a murder machine, basically in the First World War, and they were demanding um, more troops from from Australia at the time. And Mannix was calling question of that, and he wasn't mm. the only one. There was the Workers of the World. There was others involved with it, but he was kind of. The f- he was a very good figure. He was very good to speak in the public debates and that. But he really pushed that Australia having its own nationalism, its own identity, and really pushed that conversation forward to say, you should look after your own interests first before just um, supplying the needs of Britain in, in a war that that doesn't mean anything to you, you know? Yeah, and it's pretty radical to do that because... Um 
in one of the first shows I ever did on Triple R, I interviewed Dr. Sean Scalmer, who uh, he was edited a, a book called The Conscription Conflict, uh, which came out at the end of last year. And he was saying how, you know, Australians had a British identity and an Australian identity. Um, and then I guess if you're Irish, you have a British, Irish, Australian identity. Um, and, you know, your comrades are of other nationalities um, because it was an immigrant nation, um, as well as your Indigenous um, friends who were sometimes not seen as friends um, when it came to World War One and and them um, as soldiers, but uh, looking at I guess those those competing or conflicting identities, going out and saying you should put Australia first is a pretty radical thing to do at that time. It seems really quite well. Of course, we'd put us first uh, nowadays, but people still saw themselves as um, dominions of the Queen. Yeah, look, I think at that period of history that we're talking the early 20th century and First World War here in Australia is a fascinating piece of history for Australia. You really got that, as you say, those tensions between the old world and new world, the identities and that fusing and the creating of a modern Australian identity as we know it today. Um, so it's a really, yeah, it's a really um, fascinating look at how it, how it happened and, and Mannix coming in, into that and, and, and teasing it out and really kind of pushing the Australian identity is, is one that the documentary really kind of focuses on and looks at that Irish um, pressure in that time. And the documentary, it does have um, some pretty impressive thinkers. Um, and uh, if anyone is uh, into history and Irish history particularly, you'll get pretty excited with the lineup, not only because it's gender balanced, um, but because it's got really awesome people like Elizabeth Malcolm, who's a very prominent um, professor, uh, was at the University of Melbourne. And I think she's probably the star for me. If I had to pick a favourite, I don't like picking favourites, but she's pretty impressive. She's amazing, actually, and this, and just she's been so helpful to me as as I've gone along on this journey. Um, you know, providing the insight, and she she plays a, a really strong role throughout the documentary. To be honest with you, look, there's one third I think of of, of Australians of Irish heritage. There's a this is um, a story that really I don't think has been fully told. I think history kind of lives too much in the dark places of our libraries. So we try to to bring that out and tell that story and bring history to new audiences. I'm part of that newer, more, most recent generation that immigrated to to Australia, and as a whole swathe of us that haven't seen this before but yeah Elizabeth is one Stuart McIntyre features on the documentary as well Gillian Russell who is the former chair of history and Val who I just mentioned so there's a Brenda Nile as you mentioned Brenda Brenda yeah Brenda we're going to have to Brenda to our house one day and and moved a few uh, illegal traffic cones as we did (laughs) but uh, yeah look it was um it was a pleasure making the documentary, but and um, we got some great buy-in from from um, across across Melbourne and Victoria and Australia to it, you know. Mm. Yeah. And I guess the reason why you were so interested in this um, history is because of the Irish Australia intersection, and it's little known, um, I guess, fact in Australia, but also in Ireland. And you said uh, before that, or off air, that the uh, the film has been shown in Ireland. What was the reception over in Ireland to the film? Yeah, the film was shown on the Irish national broadcaster RTE, Radio Telefish Erin, Amy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it got a really good, strong reaction um, because, to be honest, I think Ireland naval gazes at America too much. JFK, gangs in New York, popular culture, all that kind of thing. The Irish-Australian story is not so much told 
Mm. And I'll be honest with you, there's a bit of, bit of maybe there's a bit of embarrassment too because we're sent over here, Van Diemen's Land, all that history. So the history hasn't really been told um, back in Ireland. So it's a misunderstanding of the Australian-Irish relationship. And it's a really fascinating history for me. I love, love history and just even small social history. I live in North Melbourne and even walking around there, seeing the Irish names because that was the original home of the Irish when they came here. Um, for me, it's fascinating. So I think there's an absolute depth of stories to be told about the Irish-Australian experience. We've got a very strong reaction in Ireland. Etihad Airways have picked it up because they're ferrying the Irish from Ireland over here to Australia and, and they put it across their global fleet as well. So there's been a really good interest in it and um, we're hoping that we will have the same reaction here in Australia. Absolutely. Well, as we... Um as we know, I just mentioned uh, earlier on that it's going to be on SBS One, uh, and it's going to be on SBS One this weekend. This weekend at half five. Now, my friends in SBS they wanted me to actually change the title to "The Rise of Irish Australia." We had it as Michael. Uh, they've shot them is, is the Irish title, but they want to make it more translatable. So, if you're looking right. for it in your in your set up recorders, it's "The Rise of Irish Australia." So. Yes, very self-explanatory yes. there. Uh, it's at 5.35 and it goes for 45 minutes. It'll also be on SBS On Demand for about a month. Um, and I just want to close out with a really interesting quote, which I think it was Brendan Nile in the film uh, said. And um, and if anyone hasn't read Mannix by Brendan Nile, please do, because I think, did it win an award as well? Or, I think it was shortlisted. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it is a really amazingly written book. Um and she says that uh, Daniel Mannix, and I guess the reason why people were so caught up with him and really um, got behind him was not just because he was, you know, the leader of the flock, you know, the Catholic flock in Australia and in Melbourne in particular, but also because of his personality and the way he approached heated debates. And I guess that he didn't really stoop to the level that sometimes our Prime Minister did at the time. And uh, and he Mannix said, according to Brendan Isle, that... Uh, and I quote, Mr. Hughes called me a liar, a traitor or rebel, but I always called him Mr. Morris Hughes. She's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant quote. And that, that duel between Mannix and uh, Hughes is fabulous. And I think Mannix really annoyed Hughes because he yeah. had those little kind of digs, you know? Totally. And if you're interested, uh, I did do a bit of a search a while back on the, I think it's the National Archives, and there are some seriously big dirt files on Daniel Mannix, um, which were created by the government to keep tabs on him because he was such a huge threat to their to their pro-conscription campaign. So there's some really interesting sources in in this period of history and I really hope people can check out this documentary and get into it. Yeah, there's not many archbishops have their ships surrounded by warships off the coast of Ireland as they're <laughs> when they're over there but I think yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous history. It is, it is. Thank you, Owen, for coming in and chatting with us about this documentary. It's called Michael Lev Shot Them. Um, you can search for it on Google too. What's the website people can check it out on? Uh, Michael1916.com great. So yeah, have a look, get into it, get into some Australian history because it really is that interesting. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.